When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The poem says, Human voices wake us, and we drown. But I've made this podcast with the belief that human voices are what we need. And so, whether from a year or 3,000 years ago, whether poetry or prose, whether fiction or diary or biography, here are the best things we have ever thought, written, or said. Since recording the episode called Jealousy a few days ago, and thinking about it in tandem with the episode called Stubbornness from a few weeks ago, and in general from uh, the personal remarks on creativity that I've made uh, scattered throughout uh, many of the episodes on this podcast, I thought that one of the things that seemed most important, at least to me, about what I was what I'm trying to say can be expressed by simply looking at uh, other writers talking about creativity, their own creativity or the creativity of other people that they admire. And one of the lessons that I wish I had learned when I was younger and first began writing, and one of the things that I hope that this space can be for either young writers or writers of any age who may feel unsure in their, in their occupation or in their way of doing things. Uh, one of the things that I think messed me up so much was the expectation that I was given or the model that I was given by certain ways that authors or poets or filmmakers or whoever it was, uh, the way they talked about it the way they talked about creativity, the way they talked about fame or success, I think I found some bad models, or it was just my fault in believing them, that I think half, or maybe even more than half, of the, the worth of what I'm about to share with you will simply be in deflating many, many, many balloons uh, that go along with what a creative person should be doing and what they should or should not be expecting uh, from their work. I want to call this series of posts The Poet Speaks. I won't be uh, giving a number to each one because I don't think that it, it won't be necessary as it is with the, the great myths or the biographical stuff that I read from. It won't be necessary to listen to all of the episodes or uh, listen to all of them in order or anything like that. You can listen to uh, the first one, the third one, the eighth one, doesn't matter. You can just pick up where we are and hear some voices talking about creativity in a way that I hope will be uh, fruitful. The very first one comes from something I just read today 
from James Shapiro's book, 1606, William Shakespeare and the Year of Lear. And he has this to say about Shakespeare's play, King Lear. The uh, play was first performed in late 1606, and Shapiro picks up the story after that. The 1608 quarto of King Lear is not the only text of the play to survive. Fifteen years later, another version was published in the 1623 folio, commonly called the first folio of Shakespeare's work. Scholars have identified over a thousand differences between these two texts, mostly inconsequential, though a few dozen are substantial. All told, the folio includes a hundred lines that don't appear in the quarto, while the quarto includes 300 lines missing from the folio. Since Alexander Pope in 1723, editors have dealt with this problem by conflating the two versions, essentially picking and choosing from each the bits that they like the best. No two editions of King Lear since Alexander Pope's have been identical. In the 1980s, a new generation of editors recoiled at this practice, proposed that the folio version was Shakespeare's later and wholesale revision of the quarto, and urged that the two different versions be published separately. A quarter of a century later, a more nuanced view is emerging, one that is more skeptical about the argument for systematic authorial revision, yet it also accepts that both the quarto and the folio are flawed texts which have different histories and which tell different stories. And a few pages later, actually, let's comment on that first. Uh, so we have King Lear, we have William Shakespeare, and here's what I mean by uh, bursting the balloons of uh, expectation and uh, the way that we are presented with uh, creative geniuses or just creativity in general. Uh, it's assumed uh, from an early age, uh, the way these things are presented to us, that someone like Shakespeare is a, is a monolithic person, or uh, a play like King Lear is a monolithic play, a mon uh, some monument of creativity that almost has its own life and just stands there immovable. But it doesn't take much scratching of the surface to see, at least and this is only one paragraph on one page in James Shapiro's book, to see that that simply is not true. It's possible that a great work of genius, a great tragedy, a great uh, delving into the human experience, uh, a great expression of what it means to be human can also be a flawed text. And it's also possible that that flawed text will have uh, an entirely, uh, not entirely different, but a, a fairly different version of itself that can also be as great as the other one. Uh, the other, when we're talking about flawed texts, I'm looking right now at a copy of uh, a book by Franz Kafka, and of course all of his novels, all of his longer work, are unfinished, and yet uh, where would we be 
or I don't want to say where would we be, we would be fine without his books, but how much better we are having The Trial, America, and The Castle on our bookshelves if Kafka is the kind of thing that we enjoy. This is a great lesson to learn, that um, these texts are fluid, and for whatever reason, there was, and, and Shapiro uh, suggests that the reason that there, at least one reason that there might be two different versions of the play is simply that the first one was too depressing, uh, too tragic an ending uh, for Shakespeare's audience. And so it was, it remained a tragedy, but the tragedy was lightened a little bit. A few pages later, Shapiro has this to say about King Lear. Um, the revisions that are evident in the folio mark the first step in a much longer retreat from what playgoers found to be unbearable. By 1681, and remember, uh, Shakespeare dies in 1616, and the first folio appears in 1623. So that, by 1681, little more than a half century after that text was published, the repudiation in the playhouse of both the quarto and the folio endings was near total. In that year, the writer Nahum Tate published The History of King Lear, a revival of Shakespeare's Lear that not only restored the earlier non-Shakespearean King Lear's happy ending, but took it even further. King Lear and his daughter Cordelia and Edgar, or excuse me, King Lear lives and his daughter Cordelia and Edgar will marry and inherit the kingdom. Truth and justice, Edgar reassures us, shall at last succeed. It's easy to smile at this now, but for the following century and a half, actors and playgoers found it more satisfying than either the quarto or the folio ending and Nahum Tate's version of the play ruled the English stage from 1681 until 1838. Uh, that's another balloon popped right there, that, uh, that even as great a critical mind as uh, Dr. Samuel Johnson uh, would have preferred to see this version of King Lear. Uh, and somewhere in, in uh, Shapiro's book even says, I won't even look at the, the original Shakespearean, the fully Shakespearean version of Lear unless I'm editing the text. He won't even look at it. Uh, and there's a wonderful story of John Keats, it must have been in the early 1800s, coming upon uh, the first folio and reading King Lear uh, as we suppose Shakespeare wanted it to be experienced, and he's just uh, astonished by what he finds there. It's a revelation to him. But then at the same time, knowing that Shakespeare was able to change his plays, edit them, respond to what the audiences uh, were giving back to him, maybe he would not have minded them at all. That's another Another thing to imagine, uh, these stories that we revere are very often the ones that we revere because they are given to us, because they become a part of us, and because in many cases we allow ourselves 
uh, not just to live with them, uh, but to change them. Now, I wasn't planning on starting this first episode of The Poet Speaks with that story, but it seems the perfect place to start. And what I will do from here on out is just read a quotation, sometimes a long one, usually a fairly short one, from a poet or a writer and uh, just see what comes up. And I thought about organizing these things thematically, uh, but let's see what uh, how how it sounds with just a fortuitous sort of gathering of quotations and see what happens. This could be something interesting. The first comes from excuse me, the first comes from the poet and classicist and translator Robert Fitzgerald, who I know from his translation of the Iliad. I know he also did. Uh, the Aeneid as well, and I'm sure many, many other things. Robert Fitzgerald has this to say. I was in the Navy, and I worked at a shore station in New York. Late in 1944, I was assigned to SINPAC, the Commander-in-Chief Pacific Ocean at Pearl Harbor. And when that command moved to the Marianas, to Guam, I went along on staff to do various menial jobs from, say, February to October of that year, I had nothing to do when I was off duty but to read. I took three books in my footlocker. One was the Oxford text of the works of Virgil, one of the Vulgate New Testament, and the other was a Latin dictionary. I went through the Virgil from stem to stern, and that's when I really first started to read the Aeneid. I never took a course on Virgil in college or anything like that. I think that's some of the interest, that with reference to my eventually doing the translation, my first real exposure to the Aeneid was hand-to-hand -hand with nothing but a dictionary, no instructor, instructor, no scholarship, nothing but the text itself and the choice, evening after evening, of doing that or going to the officers' club and getting smashed. So people, listeners, by now, if you've heard more than a few of, uh, of the episodes here, will know uh, that I have a preference for what Robert Fitzgerald is talking about here. I live off of the work of translators and scholars and professors and teachers. I live off of their work from the books of theirs that I have in my house and uh, the interviews of them that I can find. But I, I have never, or, or very rarely, lived off of an experience that I had in the classroom. So that the quotations I present here will probably lean that way. But it's a wonderful, uh, wonderful thing to hear Robert Fitzgerald say that he first came to the Aeneid and he first thought it was meaningful that he came to the Aeneid without an, without an instructor, without a scholarship, with nothing but the text itself. We shouldn't believe, and I don't know if I've ever felt this myself, but I would certainly dissuade anyone who does for a second. We shouldn't believe that these things can only be experienced 
in a classroom. The second quotation comes from the, the poet Philip Larkin, and he's talking about who he would show his poetry to when he was writing it, just to get their... We, we hear these stories all the time. Poets uh, trade their poems back and forth to get their reaction or get the advice of, uh, of poets that they trust. And he says, I shouldn't normally show what I'd written to anyone. What would be the point? You remember Tennyson reading an unpublished poem to Jowett. When he had finished, Jowett said, I shouldn't publish that if I were you, Tennyson. And Tennyson replied, If it comes to that, master, the sherry you gave us at lunch was downright filthy. And that's about all that can happen. But when we were young, Philip Larkin goes on to say, Kingsley Amos and I used to exchange unpublished poems, largely because we never thought they could be published, I suppose. He encouraged me. I encouraged him. Encouragement is very necessary to a young writer, but it's hard to find anyone worth encouraging. There aren't many Kingsleys about. And it's possible that Kingsley Amos would say there aren't many Philip Larkins about either. That's another thing, a poet. Uh, maybe less so a novelist or a short story writer um, or someone writing in prose, but certainly a poet. That's maybe not something that a poet should worry about. I wonder what other poets out there think. Uh, maybe we really don't need to be trading our stuff back and forth for any other reason than to get it out the door. Uh, I've been trading, uh, working on a new long poem and whatever other poetry I'm writing, I've been trading it with uh, two poets for the past few years, one of them in Maryland and one Actually, I think the I think they both live in Maryland now, and and while half of it is, and and I've been reading their work as well, and while half of it is just to get it, uh, to get feedback to get feedback from someone that I trust, and it's true what Larkin says there aren't many Kingsleys about. One reason that uh, a poet might not want to uh, trade his work with someone else is that. Maybe he just uh, doesn't know anybody else who he thinks could give him good advice, and that's possible too. But I've said the same thing, and the other poets have said the same thing to me, that very often the impulse to send it out isn't, isn't, um, isn't necessarily for feedback, or how can I improve this, or what do you think of this scene, or what do you think of this line? Half of it is feeling that the weight of the poem, the weight of something that you have just written, has been released from your head, or from your heart, or from your entire body, more likely that, your entire body, your spirit as well. And it is just an additional freeing feeling to send it off, to be done with it, to not have to look at it, to not have to think about it, to almost imagine that by sending it off, it isn't in your house anymore at all, uh, even though it is right there on your computer for sure. But that's a wonderful way of looking at it as well. There are no requirements for poets. There are no requirements, I would say, for writers. You can 
and maybe this is one of my own faults is that I I looked for models in other writers rather than just inspiration from other writers. Uh, it took some time to simply be inspired or informed by what they had to say about creativity rather than imagining that some version of what they were going through was something that I could model or mimic. It's very strange. I've never been one to, at least I don't think so, maybe uh, someone else could uh, find exceptions. I've never really been one to imitate the style of another poet. I don't think I really went through a phase of doing a pastiche or an, an overt uh, uh, copying of another poet's style. But I think I've done my fair best at maybe aping the lifestyle uh, of some poets and writers. The next one comes from the poet Octavio Paz, and he simply says, uh, poetry is a bridge between solitude and communion. Communion, even for a mystic like St. John of the Cross, can never be absolute. Lovers, which is what mystics are, constitute the greatest image of communion. But even between lovers, solitude is never completely abolished. Conversely, solitude is never absolute. We are always with someone, even if it is only our shadow. We are never one, we are always we. These extremes are the poles of human life. Now that reminds me of something that uh, the novelist uh, Shelby Foote said. It's very strange. Shelby Foote was, couldn't have been a f more than a few years before his death, and he wasn't getting on very well. And here he was on C-SPAN for three hours, showing off his house and his library. And, um, and he made the remark that uh, he didn't believe that uh, something to the effect of human beings are never more lonely than in the moment of orgasm. And it was just a, a bizarre thing to hear on C-SPAN, and you could, hear, you could tell that the uh, presenter who was working with him had not expected uh, Shelby Foote to say something quite like that. But what do you do? Uh, we are Lovers are never together, and the lonely are never completely alone. Let me see. I'll try and keep these find a good length for these uh, for these episodes. Let's try one more and see what happens. Uh, this is from Robert Lowell, the American poet Robert Lowell, and is one of my favorite quotations of a poet uh, ever, just for what it, what it says. Uh, poets of my generation, and particularly younger ones, have gotten terribly proficient at these forms they write a very musical, difficult poem with tremendous skill, and perhaps there's never been such skill. Yet the writing seems divorced from culture somehow. It's become too much something specialized that can't handle much experience. 
It's become a craft, purely a craft, and there must be some breakthrough back into life. Um, I'm just astonished by that quotation every single time that I encounter it. Uh, I should say, however, uh, before I get on with that, that uh, nearly all of the quotations, probably for the first few of these episodes, will come from the interviews that these writers gave to the Paris Review, which is uh, an astonishing uh, archive of of poets and writers and their words and their words on creativity. And you should go to the Paris Review or just buy the paperbacks. I think they, they have paperback collections of the interviews, if only for the interviews. And very often, as is the case with Lowell or someone like, uh, like Billy Collins, I can glean an awful lot of wisdom from someone whose poetry I don't generally like. And uh, with Mr. Lowell, that's definitely the case. We have this idea that uh, still seems to be fairly current, that, that, the, uh, that the main barriers in poetry are whether you're writing with form or without form, whether, uh, whether it's strict meter or it's free verse. But as we can see from what Lowell is saying, uh, you can have a bad poem that's extremely proficient in form and technique, but it can just end up being purely a craft that has no life in it, that can't handle, as Lowell says, much experience. I often think of the... Then on the other side, I often think of the extremely formal and very tight sort of uh, English and uh, uh, British and Irish poets and probably their American compatriots too of say the 1880s, 1890s, 1910s, just before uh, Eliot and Pound and that group really got going. Uh, they are also fairly formal in their poetry, but it, it strikes me as being fairly bloodless as well. But then when you swing to a hundred years later and you have a complete lack of form, a complete opening of the line, uh, apparently uh, no discipline or no real care to make something that is beautiful or that sounds beautiful or that could be beautiful, or to even make something ugly some, into something that is at least memorable. Um, that is just as boring as uh, some late Georgian uh, uh, Victorian poetry. It's, it's the same kind of low wattage, uh, kind of bloodless stuff. So it doesn't really matter the form that you take. I guess what matters is what you believe the form can do or what you believe that it should do. It's possible that the, uh, the late Victorian poets of England and Ireland and America had an idea in their mind of things that you shouldn't write poetry about and things that you should. And so there was sort of, a, uh, sort of that restriction on their minds about what they should or should not do. And nowadays, it doesn't seem hard to 
find those same restrictions just put under another name. Uh, in this case, it seems that poets are being are being told, I would I, I would suppose, that they must write something politically uh, charged. They must write something that is culturally of the moment. Um, or you react against that and you say, I will not do that and I must write something that is completely opaque and that no one can understand. All of these musts and don'ts and do's are very strange to me. And I'm sure I still get caught on them myself. And it is just worth reading. Let me read Lowell one more time here. Poets of my generation, and particularly younger ones, have gotten terribly proficient at these forms. They write a very musical, difficult poem with tremendous skill, and perhaps there's never been such skill. Yet the writing seems divorced from culture somehow. It's become too much something specialized that can't handle much experience. It's become a craft, purely a craft, and there must be some breakthrough back into life. It's the same idea that I had a few years ago when I read uh, a good anthology of romantic poetry and then went straight to an anthology of Victorian poetry. And you can just, I mean, aside from some obvious, uh, some obvious uh, great names, there was just a huge deflation of, in, not influence, a huge deflation of inspiration of poets just not being able to figure out what to write or how indeed to write it. Um, we can say nowadays that, that the sort of sloppy uh, WordPress or Tumblr poem has too much experience. It is basically autobiography chopped up into bits of lines and there's no real craft at all to it. But I think poets would do well to imagine a sort of middle way that, uh, that sometimes a first thought really is a best thought, but sometimes the 50th thought can also be helpful too. Sometimes something loose and flowing is the way to go. Sometimes a poem that does seem like it's coming out of a craft, something that was, something that's been chiseled rather than written is also the way to go. We have to leave ourselves open to all of these possibilities at all times and have some breakthrough back into life. At least that's my opinion. Uh, and that's all any of this is because we also have to realize that there are specialized poets who are proficient at many, many, many things. And the last thing they want to be able to handle is experience and the last thing they want to have a breakthrough back into is life and that's fine too this is the juggle that we do and as usual i will hew to my passions and see where they go so i hope this has been uh, an interesting first experiment in another way of talking about creative things Any comments or suggestions for readings I should make in future episodes can be emailed to Human Voices Wake Us, the number one, 
at gmail.com. Links to each work used in this episode can be found in the episode description. If you enjoy Human Voices Wake Us, you can subscribe wherever you find your podcasts. The music here is Duke Ellington's Arabesque Cookie.